or Justin and Trisha Davis. We've been looking forward to being here at Grace Point for quite a while. This date has been circled on our calendar for a while, and we're just excited to be here. Know that you guys could be a lot of different places, and uh, we're just pumped that you would spend a few minutes with us. If you're a guest today, just know... You know, you came on a, on a day, pastor isn't speaking, he'll be back next week, all right? Some of you got here and like, oh, guest speakers and marriage, come on, it's a double whammy, all right? But it, it'll be over soon, but it, hopefully uh, it'll be, uh, it'll be uh, something that adds value to your life, no matter where you are in your life. So before we dive in, we just want to introduce ourselves beyond our names. Uh, Justin and I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. We've been married for almost 22 years. Got married um, when we were 12. Yeah. That's not true. I just wish that it were. Yeah. And that's when you were supposed to like slap the person next to you and be like, uh-uh, she's too young. <laughs> First service didn't either. Yeah. It's okay. Must be All the right. lighting up here. We look older than what we really are. <laughs> uh, we have our three boys. Uh, we have a great picture of them. Our oldest, Micah, is a sophomore in college. Great place for you to be like, oh. <gasps> no, okay. not happening. I'm trying to like you people. Okay. And our... Middle son, Elijah, is about to graduate from high school, which is crazy. And then our youngest, Isaiah, we took this picture a year and a half ago. And this child has grown six inches since then. He now stands six foot five. Seventh so, grade. He's all that I have left. The only hope for the NBA I've got. All right. So we literally have no little people. We, um, we just want to share with you kind of our story today. And we know that each of us come in from, to this place in different places, emotionally, spiritually, maritally. Uh, some of you um, are married, some of you are single, some of you are single again. And so no matter where you find yourself today, our hope is that God's going to meet you right where you're at. I had a couple comments after the first service. One guy came up to, us, up to me and he's like, you know, that wasn't too bad, like surprisingly. And uh, he's like, I think I'm going to come back tonight, which, I, which I, was, I was grateful for. So if you want to come back tonight, we'd love, we're going to unpack literally 30 minutes of, of content for you. Uh, tonight, we're going to be able to dig it a little bit deeper and give you a little bit more, uh, not, not just of our story, but a little bit more of what it means to have an extraordinary relationship with God and an extraordinary marriage. I had a person come up to us and say, hey, uh, I'm single. Is there really anything for me uh, in this? And, and our hope is um, what we're going to talk about today and really what we're going to talk about tonight goes beyond your marital status. And we're going to share part of our story. And our prayer has been coming into today that you would find yourself in the story. Because this is a story not just about Justin and Trisha Davis, really a story about God's pursuit of us Mm -hmm. in our darkest moments, in our most vulnerable moments, in a way that redeems and restores and reclaims the promise that he has for us that we can have life and life to its fullest. So this is what we know to be true about everybody in this room, regardless of your relational status, if you're eight or you're 80, is that we all dream big dreams right? We dream that we're going to have like these epic lives. And so if you're in middle school, you're like middle schools, like you're just hoping high school gets a little bit better. If you're in college, you're just like, I just need to graduate. You know, we, we all have these things. And if you're married, you're like, all right, life is in full swing. And we dream big dreams. And Justin and I know, are no different. We met um, at a Bible college in central Illinois and we fell in love and fell in love not only with each other, but the idea that God would use us in ministry through the local church. And so we got married in 1995, which anybody get married in the nineties? Yeah. People. See, we're very slow to raise our hands because getting married in the nineties was very tragic. <laughs> everything was like, think of Cinderella meets the bedazzled machine. It's everything was big and bedazzled. In fact, my wedding veil, you know, those desert lizards, when they get mad, they're like, <sighs> that was my, I have a picture and you can see my friend Brooke like being attacked by my veil. 
I don't know. That was the vision we had. But beyond just our wedding day and our reception, Justin and I had this epic dream to have an epic honeymoon. Uh, I grew up Southside Chicago in a place called Joliet. My husband calls it the Joylet. Um, we're known we're known for our prisons. It's okay. We all have to be known for something. But uh, Justin grew up in it's. Crawfordsville, Indiana makes me call it a city, but it's surrounded by cornfields, so you can decide. But although we grew up in very different um, ways of, you know, inner city and country, one thing that we had in common is we both grew up lower income. So I didn't go on any vacations. Well, the one vacation I went to was to Wisconsin Dells. Anybody? The Dell? (laughs) Two of you are like, (laughs) some of you are like, is Wisconsin a state? Um, And just in the one vacation he went on was to Holden Beach, North Carolina. And so in our young minds, we thought the only places we could choose to go on our honeymoon were places that we had gone to. So it was either the Dells or the beach. And thankfully, the beach went out. The problem was, is we got married in my hometown, which y'all are smart enough to know that Chicago is not near the Carolinas. So we thought we should probably just drive a couple of hours, not 17 hours, our first night married. So we get through the, the wedding, we get through the reception, and then we get to borrow Justin's brand new, his parents, it was their first brand new car they had ever owned, and they were giving it to us. And you guys, it was the sexiest, it was teal. It had pinstripes on it. 1995 Astro minivan you had ever seen. We were styling on that honeymoon. And so God knew I needed that big old van for my big old dress. And so we get in and it says happily married and people are honking. And after what should have just taken about three hours took forever, like eight hours. The last person who honked, I was like, I know we're married. No more honking. We finally get to the place we're staying. And ladies, you know, we have this vision, Right. That our man, he's going to scoop us up. He's going to carry us over the threshold. But I was so tired. I was like, dude, you need to get to step in. You can get out of my way. I got to get out of this dress and go to sleep. It's been a long day. I don't know if you've been a part of it. sleep was the operative word there. And I was like, oh, let's call a timeout, my friend. I didn't get married for some sleep, right? I got married for some action. So let's light a candle. Let's throw on some boys to men. But let's get this party started. So as he tried to get the party started, I was in the bathroom changing and I started to cry, which is never good at your first night married. And then my crying turned into sobs. And the only thing I could get out of my mouth, sweet Justin's knocking on the door and he's like, are you okay? And I just said over and over again, I need you to go to Walmart. Like right now, I need you to go to Walmart. And I just thought, why would I go to Walmart at four o'clock in the morning on my wedding night in my tuxedo? Well, apparently, as we arrived at the hotel, something else arrived for Trish. So I walked down two aisles that day. The first aisle to say I do, and the feminine product aisle to say I'm not so sure. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I just bought one of everything. And you know you're in a bad place in your life when the person working the 4 a.m. shift at Walmart feels sorry for you. And she's looking at you, and I'm like, she's looking at me, and I'm like, just check me out. My wife is eagerly anticipating my arrival at the hotel. Yeah, I totally fell asleep. I'm not even going to lie. And no so, action, not a zip, zilch. It's been almost 22 years and we're still in counseling. But so we, we wake up the next morning. We make the long trip to the beach. We are young and in love. We're 20 and 21 years old. And we're not so smart that we just drop our bags. And instead of checking into where we're staying, we just go play in the glorious ocean water. Well, a little unknown fact about me, which y'all didn't think I was young, so I know you're not going to believe this, is that I'm Hispanic. 
Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> my maiden name is Lopez, but although I'm a fair-skinned Latina, I don't even remember in the Midwest getting a, like a sunburn, blister burn. But after three hours of being in the glorious ocean water, I was sunburned, blistered, burned from head to toe. Like to the point I was like, Justin, I need you to not touch me. In fact, um, I need you not to talk to me because when you get close, your breath, it hurts my face. Like just stay over there. For the next three days, nothing touched her body but aloe vera. And you know it's an epically bad honeymoon when you're calling your dad collect because that's what you do in 1995? Some of you need to Google what a collect call is. And you're talking to your father about the action you're not having on your honeymoon. It's a very awkward conversation. And my dad's like, four days and nothing? I'm like, yeah, is that normal? He's like, you know, we're not even Catholic, but I think you could annul that. Just high five and walk away. Nice. Okay, so the very last day of our honeymoon, before you feel really bad for Justin, we had all this money. So I decided I would rent a jet ski because running a jet ski for my young groom who has a lot of pent up energy towards his wife is like not wise. And so this is the moment in the relationship where you realize who the rule follower is and who the rule breaker is. Who are my rule followers? Raise your hand. I don't even know if they can raise their hand. Is this okay? Can we raise our hands right now? Yeah. Who are the rule breakers? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you hear them before you see them. Yeah, they're like, I didn't say to woo. I just said raise your hand. Already breaking the rules. Well, I'm the rule follower. Justin's the rule breaker. We get on this jet ski, and I would like to go over the rules of engagement on how to ride this thing. But before I can say anything, the moment happened. You know that moment where time just like stands still, and all you can think is, I'm about to die. Use that moment. <laughs> We are on the jet ski, and all of a sudden, this huge party yacht comes into the cove. And it's so huge, and it's got people on top of it, and there's music playing, and they look really happy. And this huge boat is creating huge waves. And my husband's like, oh, yes. And I'm like, uh-uh. And he's like, oh, yes. So full throttle, he goes towards the boat to the point that people on the boat are like, oh, what's going on down there? I hit the waves so hard and so fast, I shoot straight up in the air to the point I'm like, what's up to the people on the party yacht? <laughs> And then I came down in a belly flop position, right? I know, so bad. And then when I came up out of the water, all my blisters had popped. I and I was like, payback. I mean, I didn't say it out loud. I was just silently thinking it to myself. But, but here's the deal. The reality is that Justin and I, and maybe you share in this belief, that we believe that if we loved God and we loved each other, the dreams that God had placed on our hearts would just go up and to the right. That we would have this epic life and this epic vision that would be free of wounds, free of struggles, free of strife, as long as we just fit into that formula of loving God and loving each other. So we got married the summer before my second senior year of college. I squeezed four years into five, just wanted more student loans. And uh, so here we are, we're young, we're in love, we're in college, we're broke. And then four months into marriage, we realized that Trish doesn't have the flu like we thought she did, that she was pregnant. And who knew that birth control was counteracted by antibiotics? We did not know that. That's free for some of you today because we've been paying for that for the last 20 years, okay? And so we're going to be new parents. I graduate from college. We dive headfirst into student ministry. And we spent the next seven years helping students come into a relationship with God through the local church. Seven years into ministry, we felt like God had laid on our hearts this vision to plant a new church for people who didn't go to church on the northeast side of Indianapolis. And so uh, we moved uh, about 40 minutes from where we live right now. We moved to the northeast side of Indianapolis. We sold everything that we owned. Uh, we had $5,000 to our name, which really just means we didn't own a lot of stuff. And uh, we started this church. And our vision was, by the time we're out of this money, we should have a church going. Which sounds very faithful. It's not a very wise way to start a church. So June 1st, 2002 is when we moved. On June 9th, we had our very first service and 12 people showed up. 
Now, as a church planner, you're looking for any sign at all that God may be remotely in this. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, 12 people, 12 disciples. This is biblical, right? Like three of these people have on sandals and Jesus himself wore sandals. It's anointed. It's going to work. And after that Sunday, those 12 people became 20 people and 20 people became 50. And then we got a a few uh, local churches that got behind us and gave us meeting space and office space and helped us out. And and, uh, we launched public services in September of 2003 with over 200 people. And from September of 2003 to Easter of 2005, our church would grow to over 700. But more than just the number of people that were coming, there were people who were far from God who were finding their way back to God and people uh, who were uh, and never hadn't been to church in years were giving church another try and they were being baptized and finding a home and community and they were serving and going on mission trips. And it was like everything that we had dreamed and planned for this church was coming into fruition. Even as, as the church was going up and to the right, there were cracks in the foundation of my faith and there were holes in the foundation of our marriage that became, that became very apparent. Trish and I had become really good ministry partners and really bad marriage partners. And though, although everything looked great from the outside, the reality of our marriage relationship now 10 years into marriage is we were drifting. We were drifting apart from one another and apart from God. And I think that that's what happens, right? We start living life regardless of what season we're in and things don't quite unfold or come into fruition like we think they should. And so we just look to the next milestone, the next achievement. So for those of you who are in middle school and it's, it's been rough, you just think, you know, in high school, I just get, I need to make varsity. I just need to get part of that clique, part of that group. Then I can start living out the vision. And maybe for you, you just, you're like, I got to get out of college. Once I get out of college and I get that special degree, then I'll make something of myself. Then I could start living the vision. Maybe for you, you've been single and you're single into your thirties and you're feeling the tension and you're feeling the tension of the culture and how isolating church often feels that you have to come in again by yourself. And you're wondering, who do you get to sit by? And you're, you're remaining idle because you're just looking for the next achievement. And you just think, well, once I can find a husband, once I can find a wife, then I can start living my life. Then I can start living the dream. Maybe for you, you got married and you're in an apartment and, and marriage has been a little bit rougher than you thought it would be. Do so you think I mean, it's this apartment? We got to get out of this apartment. We, we have to buy a house. Once we're in the pow- house, we can start living our dream. And Justin and I were no different. 10 years into marriage, 10 years into ministry, we were knocking out milestones and achievements. In fact, when we planted in 2002, statistically, church plants that launched the way that we did, 80% of them fail, close the door. So the fact that our little church wasn't just surviving, that we were thriving, and we were married and we had these three gorgeous little boys. Everybody thought the Davises, like we were living life. I, people wanted to know what we were doing. They wanted what we had. But in the inside, Justin and I knew that we were drifting from one another to the point where I would rather be his ministry partner than his marriage partner. And so we do what most of you do. We just look to the next milestone, the next achievement. This is our 10-year anniversary. And we thought, you know what? We're tired. We're tired. Church planning is hard. Pastoring a church is hard. We just need to get away. And so we went on a cruise because, I mean, why not, right? We went on this cruise. And when we started on the cruise, I kind of wanted my own cabin. Like, you stay in yours and I'll stay in mine. Like, that's how bad we were. And by the end of the cruise, there is nothing more romantic that cultivates love, cultivates love like a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. And I thought that that milestone, that achievement 
was what was healing me because I actually fell in love with Justin. Like, I really like you. You're really cute. Like, I want to hang out with you. And then I'm healed. Problem was, is that the cruise ended. And when the cruise ended, we stepped right back into the same life. We stepped right back in the same dysfunctional patterns. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I went to Bible college. I love Jesus. I love God's word. But I had no idea that when bitterness takes root, when life gets hard and you start to turn to milestones and achievements rather than turn to God, that your heart starts to drift. And I had no idea that I had the capacity to drift so far, not only from the heart of God, but from the heart of my marriage. You know what the cruise allowed us to do is it allowed us to change our behavior for a few days, but neither of us really had to change our heart. And so our circumstances changed and the pain and the hurt that we were feeling in our marriage dissipated. But what we realized when we got back is we were really just taking Tylenol for a brain tumor because we didn't really change who we were. We just changed our behavior. And as we came back, our communication pattern didn't change. Our scheduling didn't change. The way we took advantage of one another didn't change or took each other for granted didn't change. Our tone of voice didn't change. And there became this alarming gap between the marriage that we had and the marriage that we thought we would have. Have you ever experienced that gap in your life? Maybe for some of you today, there's a gap between the job that you have and the career that you thought you would have. And you're miserable every single day. In fact, you feel anxious just thinking about Monday on Sunday. Maybe for some of you, there's a gap between the mom that you are and the mom that you thought you would be. Because being a mom is a lot harder than you ever anticipated and you carry mommy guilt with you every single day. Maybe for some of you, there's a gap between the husband that you are and the husband that you promised you would be. Maybe for some of us today, if we're really honest, there's a gap between the relationship with God that we have and the relationship with God that we pretend we have. And what other people think to be true about us isn't true at all. How do you close that gap? How do you reconcile that gap? See, Trisha and I had this belief that longer married would equal a better marriage. The longer we're married, the better our marriage is going to be. Isn't that what we believe? That's why we look at movies like The Notebook and think that's how it's going down for me. I'm going to die in a hospital bed with my husband. Spoiler alert, that's how The Notebook ends, okay? If you haven't seen it, I just saved you three hours of your life. But that, that's what we think, right? Longer married equals a better marriage. But now 10 years into marriage, longer married didn't equal better marriage. Longer married meant more irritable. Longer married meant less patience. Longer married meant louder arguments. Longer married meant the same argument over and over and over again. We never thought about anything new. All this culminated on October 9th, 2005. I came home from church and Trisha was laying down for an afternoon nap. And I said, we need to have a conversation. She said, okay, about what? I said, about us. She's like, what about us? I said, I'm done. She's like, you're done with what? I said, I'm done with you. Like, I'm out. I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to be in ministry anymore. I'm not in love with you anymore. Having an affair, it's with your best friend. I want to be with her. I'm done. And I wish, 11 years later, I wish it was a confession of remorse. And I wish it was a confession of repentance. It was just a confession of resignation. When Trish and I got married, we were awesome at fighting for each other. And then over the next... 10 years, we became experts at fighting with each other. And now it's just done fighting. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where you give and you give and you give and what you think you deserve in return isn't reciprocated. What begins to happen in that situation is a sense of entitlement begins to live in your heart and entitlement's three favorite words are you owe me. 
And that person can never repay all that you think that they owe. And that's exactly where I was in my relationship with Trish. She was never going to be the wife I felt like I deserved, and so I was done. Well, obviously, the intensity of our conversation went way up. Trisha left the house, and just a few minutes later, one of the elders at our church called me, and he was screaming at me on the phone. Please tell me this is a sick joke. This has to be a joke. I had him bring all the elders over to our house. Seven of these guys came over, three of whom had been with us since day one. Our three-year-old church, average age of 28, we had just raised a million dollars in a capital campaign to buy the building that we were meeting in. And one of the guys on our team had donated $250,000 to that endeavor. And I had cheated on all of them too. And they sat there for the next few hours, not trying to talk me out of the consequences of my choice because that was pretty much set. But the choice itself to leave my wife and my three young boys who were nine, six, and three at the time. And I just couldn't hear it. And I don't know if you've ever been in a dark place in your life where you have to divorce yourself emotionally from the carnage that you're causing those who love you the most. So I left and went and checked into a hotel. And as I arrived, a lady from our church called me and she said, if you have any hope at all of restoring your marriage relationship, you're going to go to this counseling appointment that we've made for you tomorrow. And I just thought, counseling? I don't go to counseling. I'm a pastor. I do counseling. I've never been to counseling before. By By God's grace, I showed up at this counseling appointment the next day and I sat down kind of defiantly in the chair and told the lady basically as much as the story as I told you. And she said, well, what do you hope to accomplish with this counseling session? And I said, you know, if I can just cut to the chase and just get rid of all the Christianese, here's what I want you to help me figure out. I want you to help me figure out how God's going to bless my life no matter who I choose. That's what I want. And she said something in that moment that became the linchpin for the restoration process that God was going to do in our marriage. She said, I can help broken people. I can't help hard-hearted people. I had been a Christian since I was 10. I've been a pastor for 10 years. I had no idea what brokenness was. Over the next few days, God would begin to break my heart and give me a desire to have a second chance in our marriage, even though I didn't know if it was possible because Trisha had packed up all of my things, kicked me out of the house, moved me in with a family that had helped us start the church. And we didn't talk for the next 10 days. We were separated for the next two months. And I started going to counseling by myself. 10 days into our separation, Trisha called me on the phone and I say to people all the time, if the prodigal son's dad would have had a cell phone, this would have been a call he would have made. And she said, I hear you've been going to counseling. I said, yes. She said, well, I'm willing to go with you. So we started going to counseling a few days later, went to counseling four days a week for the next two months. So we tell couples all the time, if you feel like your marriage is in trouble, our counselor wanted to see us four days a week. That's how jacked up we were, okay? There's hope for you. Just hang in there. It's going to be fine. But those counseling sessions, God began to peel back layers of brokenness and layers of dysfunction and hurt and bitterness and half-truths that we hadn't had the courage to talk about or taken the time to talk about and began a restoration process in our marriage that continues to this day. You know, at Justin's uh, confession, I didn't lose, obviously, what I thought I was losing in my marriage. I didn't lose uh, just my best friend. I didn't just lose my church family. And y'all, being in ministry and being uh, especially senior leadership, it's hard. And oftentimes we're not near family. And so your church family is your family. Your church family is who helps you love your kids, raise your kids. They're, They're everything. Who you walk through life with. I wasn't just losing my family. The biggest thing is that I was losing the only identity I had ever known as an adult. Like I was a pastor's wife. I had been faithful to the bride of Christ. 
And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you feel like your identity has been stripped and there are no milestones and achievements to achieve. That you're just laid bare to go, okay, God, what is next? And what I love about God is that he meets us the most when we're willing to need him the most. And he was all I had left. So sitting on the couch with my three little boys at my feet, just kind of wondering, just numb, what is next? How are we going to survive? And I remember opening up my Bible, honestly, really defiantly to say, you know what? I'm I'm not playing the pastor's wife anymore. If you're real, you need to show up because I'm done. I'm done. And I opened up my Bible to a passage found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. And I want to read it to you. It says this. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. And as I was reading that, I'm like, God, I'm not the one who needs discipline here. I don't know how much more I can lean in. And then when I read those words... In verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. I felt like the first time God got me, that he was saying, this, is, this life is hard. It's going to be painful as you lean into me. But then it goes on with the promise. It says, but afterwards, there'll be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. And honestly, that day, I had no idea that God would use our story. We did not set out to be marriage people. We did not set out to write a book. But then I realized that the redemption story that God has given us is a gift. And I have a choice to either bury it or to do something with it. And so our book is not about five happy hops to a healthy marriage. Our book is not about infidelity. Our book is how can you love Jesus and still drift from the heart of God? And from the heart of your spouse, because here's the deal. The affair gets all the attention. The affair is the bomb that we drop. But if I'm honest with you, the affair was a symptom of much greater issues in our marriage relationship. It's what we share in the book and what we want to leave you with. Obviously, there's huge gaps of how we got to here today that we don't have time to. But the, the principles, we talk about 12 of them in the book, but the two that we want to share with you, you know, I'm... I, These aren't principles that we wrote about 11 years ago. They're principles that met me on the couch with my boys. And they're the same principles that continue to shape my heart and the heart of our marriage today. You know, as we started writing the book about four years, a little over four years ago, we had a 17-year retrospective of our marriage that we were able to look back on. And what we realized is that long before the affair, we had an ordinary marriage. We were trying to do extraordinary things with God in settling for an ordinary marriage with each other. And an ordinary marriage is really just an overflow of an ordinary relationship with God. And you can't have anything extraordinary in your life. Dating, career, friendship, marriage, parenting, if your relationship with God is ordinary. And God longs for us to live life and life to its fullest. And so often we just settle for mundane and mediocre. And we think this is as good as it's going to be. So what does it look like to recapture 
that life, that vision that God has for us. And so I just want to share one principle with you and then Trisha's going to close with one. That's why I hope that you can come back tonight because we're going to be able to unpack a lot more. And there's like a lot of dots that are not connected right now, which we get. Um, And so we'll be able to connect those as well. But the first principle is this, ordinary is defeated as we tell the truth. Ordinary is defeated as we tell the truth. I mentioned that Trisha and I have been going to counseling for 30 days, yeah, for 30 days, four times a week. And so after 30 days, we had gone to 16 counseling sessions. That's a lot of counseling. You can cover a lot of ground in 16 counseling sessions. Our, our counselor's like, you know, you guys are doing phenomenal. We had circled a date on the calendar. I was going to move back home. And uh, he's like, trust is starting to be rebuilt. Trisha's starting to actually believe some of the things that you're saying. And so if you've left anything out, now's the time to share it. And I knew in my heart that I would withheld truth from her. Not because I wanted to hurt her, because I wanted to heal the marriage, right? I thought if she knew that, it would be over. If she knew that, it would be a deal breaker. But he said, Justin, unconfessed sin always leads to repeated behavior. So if you don't want to be back here in three months or three years or 13 years, you need to come clean. So I took a deep breath and I said, okay, as far as the affair goes, I've told you everything. But I have a lot more to share with you. I said, I was sexually abused when I was a kid and I've never told anyone. I've never gotten help for it. I've never confided to anybody about it. I have carried the shame and the guilt of that situation with me my entire life, and I don't know how to heal from it. So I'm not trying to excuse my behavior. I'm just trying to understand my behavior. I know I need healing in this area. I said, I've struggled with pornography for the last 10 years, and I've deflected it, and I've denied it, and I've preached against it. I've counseled people through it. And I know freedom doesn't come in this moment, but I know it starts in this moment. And if you want nothing to do with me, You can have everything. This isn't about us anymore. This is about me finally living in a right relationship with God. And in an act of grace and mercy, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, she said, now we can start over. Now we can begin again because I finally know the real you. And that wasn't the finish line. That was actually the starting line for all of the work that God was going to do in our life. And one of the things I've learned over the last 11 years is that God has created us for intimacy oftentimes we just associate intimacy with sexual intimacy, but the word intimacy literally means to be fully known. It's why you come to church. You have a desire to be known by God. You have a desire to know God. It's what draws you to this place. It's why you're drawn to relationships, friendships, and marriage, because God has created you to be known. It's our greatest desires to be known, and our greatest fear is to not be loved. And so often those two that desire and that fear collide with one another. And what happens is we begin to compromise truth in relationships, not because we want to be liars, but because we want to be loved. And we think if that person knew the truth about me, they wouldn't love me. And so we attach a pain quotient to every single relationship we have. And we say that person can handle this much pain. So this is as much truth as I'm going to give them. The problem is you're created for intimacy. And because intimacy means to be fully known, every time you compromise truth in a relationship, you place a lid, you place a cap on the amount of intimacy that relationship is capable of experiencing. And so, so many couples get into marriage with all these dreams and aspirations that they're going to give their whole life to their spouse. And then they compromise truth and they don't realize why their marriage is in a plateau, why their relationship with God is in a plateau. It's probably because we were withholding truth, not because we want to damage the relationship, because we think we're saving it. What we're doing is we're choking intimacy a little bit at a time out of that relationship. See, Jesus says the truth will set you free. What he conveniently leaves out is it'll probably make you miserable first. But short-term misery for long-term freedom is a trade worth making. And can I just tell you something today? God knows you fully and he loves you anyway.
That's right. That's grace. Like all the things that you think you're hiding from God, you're not. But just like God won't force himself into your salvation, he won't force himself into your transformation. He can't heal the parts of our heart we don't give to him. And so he asks us to be honest with, uh, with him, not for his benefit, but for ours. Because it's transparency that brings about transformation. People ask me all the time, Justin, how could you be a pastor for 10 years and struggle with pornography? How could you be a pastor for 10 years and struggle to and have an affair on your wife? Didn't you have any accountability in your life? I had an accountability partner I met with every Tuesday. I had a church planning coach I met with every Wednesday. I just lied to them. See, accountability is only as valuable as the transparency that you offer in the context of that accountability. Pastor Mike and I can meet every day for accountability. If I don't tell him the truth, nothing changes. And so my question to you is, are you willing to be a person of truth? It might cost you something on the front end, and it might not be easy on the front end. But what God will do in your life to restore intimacy and bring about the, the relationships that you deeply desire will be well worth the sacrifice. And lastly, I close with this, that ordinary is defeated when we choose to forgive. That ordinary in any relationship is defeated when we choose to forgive. And I know all of you are like, oh, girl doesn't know. I've been a Christian since 1988. Like I knew that. I, I think all of us want to be forgiving people. I just don't think we know how to. There's even this famous conversation that takes place in in Matthew between Jesus and his disciple, Peter. And and Peter says to Jesus, well, how many times do I need to forgive? And he throws out this number seven. And it's actually kind of a comical moment because in those days, the rabbis taught you only had to forgive someone three times. Can you imagine how awesome that would be if we could go to Walmart and buy forgiveness stickers and be like, mother-in-law, one, two, three. I I know, I love my (laughs) mother-in-law. But, you know, at least it would be defined how to, how to forgive. And then Jesus gives this radical response. He says, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What Jesus is saying in there is it's not a mathematical equation, but forgiveness is a process that you're going to have to choose over and over again. And the process begins when we stop faking it till we make it. The process begins when we start to feel the grief of our situations, of our wounds, of our lives, of our relationship. I call it the church fight. You know, like on Sunday morning, everybody wakes up in a bad mood. Even the two-year-old, you're like, dude, I change you and I feed you. Like, how can you be in a bad mood? <laughs> and then as parents, we go, let's just get in the car, right? All the teenagers are like, preach that, you know, get in the car. Everybody gets in the car and then what happens? World War Three breaks out and people are crying and their Cheerios flying and dad is using inappropriate language and sign language <laughs> on the way to church. And then... The miracle happens. The church parking lot miracle, right? Where we're arguing, arguing, arguing in the church parking lot. We're like, <sighs> get it all together. And we're like, we're in the side door. Pastor Mike's never at the side door. And you get in the side door. And who's there? Pastor Mike. He's like, hey, family. And you're like, hey, Pastor Mike. And, you look, and he's like, how you doing? And we're like, we're great. You look at your kids. You're like, tell them you're great. <laughs> <laughs> that oftentimes we hold our pastor, pastors hostage for the church being a, a, the place where we fake it to, we make it. But what if we decided to be a people of truth and say, you know what? It's not always these big things. So it's just the small things to say, you know what? We've had a bad morning. I can't stand these children. I need them to go to class. <laughs> that if we want to live life fully known in order to be fully loved, we have to feel the grief. We have to get honest. 
And then out of our honesty, you have to be prepared that you're going to get angry. That anger is a gift from God. Righteous anger is what causes you to take action, to do something different. And you know you struggle with forgiveness when you can't even remember what the fight is about. It just always comes back to the same wound. And in your mind, in your heart, you think, I'm going to win it this time. But to do something over and over and over again and expect different results is what? It's insanity. And so if I was going to lean into this person of being a person of truth, because I could have easily said, Justin, you go get fixed. You go get fixed because you're the one who caused all this damage. And honestly, I've got the Christian community who's got my back because scripturally I could leave you. But as I became a person of truth, I realized that I struggled with forgiveness and I didn't want to be insane anymore regardless of my relational status. That I had chosen out of my grief and out of my anger, I had chosen bitterness over and over again. And bitterness is like this resentment. It's like a cancer that it doesn't affect just a marriage relationship. It affects all relationships. That forgiveness is when we choose over bitterness and resentment and we choose brokenness. And brokenness is an act of surrender to say, God, I don't know. I give this wound to you. I I don't know how to heal it, but I'm trusting that you do. And I believe that as we offer forgiveness, God restores relationships because I was seeing it in my marriage. God was restoring us to a place. He was making us new like that Hebrews passage. He was giving us a new grip, even though we were standing on shaky legs. And so I wanted that same transformation, that same restoration with my best friend. So a year after the affair, I sat down and I wrote her a letter and I told her how much I loved her. I told her through the power of forgiveness, God allowed me to see her beyond this myopic view of a woman who really, frankly, destroyed my life and gave me a panoramic view of this reality that we're all just messed up sinners in need of grace. And I wanted her to find that freedom that's found in forgiveness. And maybe you've been there. You know, you've offered forgiveness and you believe like me that if you offer it, then restoration will happen. And and in my story, you know, a week went by, a year went by, a whole decade went by with no response. And then last year I was contacted by CNN to do a a little piece on forgiveness as we've shared our, our story and before you're impressed, it was like at two o'clock in the afternoon and like five people saw it. But <laughs> the one person who did see it out of those five was my best friend. And so she sat down and she penned herself her own letter. And it was the best letter of an apology of someone who's not broken could write. And I don't know if you've ever felt like God just made a fool out of you. Where I have gone around the country, I've written a book about forgiveness, and I'm wrong. That God has made a fool of me. Have you ever been there? Where you're like, you know what? God doesn't know what it's like for someone to smear your name on social media. You have no idea what it's like to be in a community of people where everybody gossips. You don't know what it's like to come on to church and knowing that so-and-so is having an affair with so-and-so, and they just continue like everything's normal. Like God doesn't get it. He doesn't know what it's like to be faithful to friendship just to have it blow up in your face. He has no idea how hard it is to be in high school. He doesn't know how hard it is to be in college. And I'm searching for him, and I'm coming to church, and I'm like, God, where are you? Have you ever been there? 
And what I love about Jesus is, is he's the same Jesus that met me on the couch with my three boys and the same Jesus that he met me last year when I felt like he had made a fool out of me. And he just whispers to my heart, I do. I do. Y'all, we have a Jesus that knows what it's like to be in perfect unity with the Father in heaven. And he chose to come to this earth as a helpless baby, an infant, 100% dependent on humans. Think about that. We have a Jesus that grew up with trials just like us. We have a Jesus that had community with the disciples that, listen, they got to experience heaven touching earth. Miracle after miracle. And then when he needed them the most, they fell asleep. When he needed them the most, Peter denied him. Not one time, not two times, but three times. That his crown of thorns is being placed on his head and he's been made to carry a cross in which he would eventually be hung from. He's looking up and there's no one to be found. As he's raised on the cross, clothes stripped from him, he looks down. If he could not be any more humiliated in this moment as people are lashing false accusations at him, You have people, soldiers bartering over his clothes. And you know what he says? He says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Then we have this Jesus that knows what it's like to take on our sin. And in that moment, the first time in history, be separated from the Father and cry out, Oh my gosh, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? that we have a Jesus that gives us a picture of forgiveness. The true forgiveness is when we offer it regardless of how the person responds because that's what Jesus did for you. It's what he did for me. That forgiveness doesn't always restore a relationship, but it will always heal your heart. That the story of the cross does not stop on the cross, but three days later he rose again, that there is victory found in forgiveness. And so as I close, my question to you is this, do you believe it? Do you believe it? And secondly, are you willing to offer it? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for being a God who knows all of us and you love us anyway. Lord, there are some of us in this room that they've dismissed what I've said and they haven't been listening because they're the wounder, they're the adulterer, they're the one who's messed everything up. Lord, today, this morning, would you remind us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross? That while we were all sinners, you died for us. And so, Lord, would you help us be brave in the offering? that we lean into the discipline of offering forgiveness, even if it means it's on shaky legs. Lord, would you give us the opportunity to maybe write a letter, to make a phone call? Maybe the person that wounded us isn't even alive anymore. Lord, would you show us the way to offer that forgiveness, knowing it may not restore that relationship, but that it will give healing to our hearts. And lastly, I know that there are some of you in this room with eyes closed that you have been working so hard and you're so exhausted. You've been coming to church, you join a small group, you've been coming to the youth group and you're doing all the right things, but you haven't surrendered your heart, surrendered your life fully to Jesus. 
What if today became your moment where you said, I want to choose different. I want to step out of the insanity of trying to control my life. And I want to choose Jesus who I believe has forgiven me and washed me of my sins, that he knew me from the beginning and he loves me anyway. If that's you this morning, if that's a choice that you know that you need to make, would you be brave in this moment with eyes closed, heads bowed? Would you raise your hand and say, today I choose Jesus. Today I choose different. raise your hand, just pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, that you came to this earth, that you walked in community, fully God, fully human, that you died on the cross, you took my sins, that through you, eternity in heaven is found. And the third day you rose again and you give life and victory found in the resurrection. That your body and blood paid a price for me that I can't repay, but the grace and mercy, I believe it. I believe that you can transform me. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to be a Christian. I don't know what it means in the doing, but would you remind me that every day, It's not what I do, but it's who I already am, that I am loved and I am chosen and I am redeemed by a Jesus who changes stories, who changes lives, that I would walk away different. We pray this in your name. Amen.